Okay. So two weeks ago we studied how Jesus, while walking with his disciples from the Mount of Olives around the area of Bethany and Bethpage is what it says, but it, it really in their language was something closer to Bethphage. Um, I'll just say Beth Page because I'm American. <laughs> you know, I have a hard time, you know, pronouncing those words. But from those cities, they entered Jerusalem, and Jesus, last week as we looked, he entered Jerusalem humbly on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And this is how a king in those days would enter a city when entering peacefully. <laughs> we Christians refer to this as Jesus's triumphal entry. But what's funny is as Mark is writing this gospel and he's pinning it according to what Peter told him, if he were to call it a triumphal entry, that would be a very laughable thing for those who he's writing to. Remember, he's writing to a primarily Gentile or Roman group. He's writing to the people in Rome. Um, and as he's writing that, he's writing about this, this guy coming in on a colt full of a donkey and he's coming in under this, this banner of applause and lauding. He, as he's coming in, they're praising his name and they're quoting from uh, Psalm chapter 118, verse 25 and 26. They're saying, Hosanna, which we looked at last or two weeks ago. Hosanna just means save now. He says in Psalm 118, save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So they're praising his name, and as he's coming in, what you've got to realize about Roman culture is that they're hearing this story through the pen of Mark. They're reading this going, okay, a king came in, and they're calling him king according to Matthew. And so as he's coming in, the only way in a Roman culture that you would be given such an honor as a triumphal entry is if you had gone out to battle and you had conquered 5,000 people to death, and it wasn't in, in a victorious in a victory over your enemies. Well, so from a Roman perspective, according to that standard, if he was going to come in and they called it a triumphal entry, they would laugh at you. They'd be like, "He's not he's not a conquering king. He just came into town with all of his lackeys. He just came in with a bunch of common people. The only people singing his praises were peasants, poor people, people that didn't have much." And so if, if you're telling Romans that this man was a conquering king, they would plain out laugh at you. They wouldn't have anything positive to say. But what I want to make note of is that Jesus, when he came into the town, he was coming as a conquering king, whether they thought so or not, because God doesn't see the way that we see. If you think about it, according to Acts, in uh, I believe it's chapter 4, on the day of Pentecost, they have this instance where Jesus has told them after his death, his burial, and then his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, I want you to wait in the city, and I want, to wait, I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, and then he's going to empower you to do the will of the Father, just like I did. That's what Jesus told them. So they waited, and the Holy Spirit came, and on the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days, Penta, 50 Cost. I don't really remember what that means, but Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, we had the Pentecost and the Holy Spirit comes down and he empowers the believers. And on that day, Peter stands up and he gives a defense for the gospel. He, he proclaims to them the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the King. And when he proclaims that, there are 5,000 
on that day that are recorded that repented and received Jesus as their Savior. So maybe he came into the town and the world didn't see him as a conquering king. But on the day that that happened, 5,000 people were slain. I'm not saying they were slain in the spirit like some would say. I'm saying that they were cut to the heart by the word of God and they were saved by Jesus Christ. They were brought out of the kingdom of darkness and their hearts were conquered and they received the kingdom of light, Jesus Christ. So on that day, he became a conquering king. So he was, in fact, when he came in, he deserved the best triumphal entry that we had to offer. But did he receive that? No, he didn't receive that. Matter of fact, what he did receive was a bunch of commoners. He received a bunch of people that were there on the day as he was entering during the time of Passover. They took their clothes. They took branches, palm branches that they laid down in front of his path, essentially laying out a red carpet for him to enter into the city. So as he enters as a triumphal king, he received a common entrance. And at the same time, the Pharisees were so upset. They said, you know, hey, you need to tell your disciples to pipe down and what he said was I could tell them to pipe down but if they were quiet even the rocks would cry out because their creator is coming in he's coming into the city where he was going to conquer so as they're saying this save now I pray O Lord save now blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord this is the first time that we ever see Jesus willingly receiving worship from the public and as he's receiving it they were crying out And the fact that they were crying out implies that whatever they had trusted in so far had left a void in their lives. They realized they needed to be saved. Now, they may not have realized how they needed to be saved. As a matter of fact, the fact that they're crying out implies that their current situation, their current religious practices, and their current political system had left them wanting something else. Something that would meet their most basic needs. A Savior who would satisfy them. They wanted salvation from the oppressive government who was taxing them and sucking them dry. And they wanted a ruler who would bring them peace. They wanted peace. Imagine that. People that want peace. I can relate to this. No matter what it might cost them, though, they wanted peace no matter what it cost them. They were going to follow whoever could give them what they wanted. They saw him as a great candidate to save them, but from only the physical ailments they were experiencing. What they didn't know was that Jesus came this time to deal with the main problem, the root problem for all their troubles. Their root problem wasn't poverty. Their root problem wasn't bad politicians, although it was. They couldn't fix the symptoms. They needed a fix for the source of the problem. And so Jesus didn't come to deal with their symptoms. Think about it this way. This is probably cold season for a lot of people, right? Cold season goes all year round, but when we try to fix a cold, how do we fix it? We deal with all the symptoms because there's no common, there's no cure for the common cold. It's a viral infection. It's a viral, it's viral. They always say that it's viral. You can't really do anything. You got to deal with the symptoms for now and just kind of let it ride out. Your immune system will take care of it. Well, when we take, when we get a cold, we take medicines to deal with maybe the itchy throat or the runny nose or maybe the earache, the headache. But we can't fix the source. Jesus, in the same way, realizes that we all the ways that we try to cure what ails us are all ways that we deal with symptoms. We try to fix you know, uh, the problems with people stealing stuff. 
what do we do? We try to deal with the symptom. But the problem is they're stealing stuff because there's a root cause. And so Jesus, when he came, he came and he did miraculously heal people. He did set them free from demonic possession. He did deal with the fact that they were blind. He would fix their eyes. But what he mainly came to deal with, those things showed that he was, in fact, God. But what he came to deal with was the root cause, the heart. He came to save people from their sin, to forgive them, to provide the power to be forgiven against who they had sinned, God. He came to set right our relationship with God. So verse 11, as we start in today's text, Jesus went into Jerusalem right after the triumphal entry. He went into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things in the temple, as the hour was already late, it was going to be dark soon, the street light had come on. For those of us that grew up in a rural neighborhood, street light comes on, we know we've got to go home. And uh, the hour was already late, so he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So Jesus and his disciples went into Jerusalem just for the evening to look around right after he entered the town in the triumphal entry. He went to scope out the condition of the city, that, and, and then they retired for the evening back to a place called Bethany. Now this is where Mary and Martha lived. This is where Lazarus was healed, according to John chapter 12. So as he's leaving Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, he's going back out to where he was staying. It's funny to me because Jesus, when he was born, they had to go all over the place trying to find a place for his mom and his dad to stay, his kind of his dad, you know, Joseph, was coming in and they needed a place to stay. They had to come to the town to be uh, counted in the census, but even at that point, he had no place to lay his head because there was no room. It was during a time of a ceremonial you know, feast. And so as they come into town, even this time, because the Feast of Passover is going on, all the hotels are full. Well, they didn't have hotels. They had people that were very you know, given to hospitality. They would bring people into the home. They'd let people stay, even common strangers. But there was no place for them to stay so Jesus had a place outside of the city where he would stay in Bethany with Mary and Martha, these people that he had been involved in their lives. So as they go back out, they um, <clears throat> excuse me. Oh, the other note I wanted to make was what an honor it must have been for Martha and Mary to keep their Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself in the flesh, as a guest in their home for an evening. And at the same time, what a scary thing. Because Jesus wasn't somebody you would want staying at your house, even though he could miraculously heal you. If the Pharisees and the religious leaders found out he was there, imagine what would have happened. They could have brought people in and, and arrested him in your house. It could have been very dangerous. It was like keeping a fugitive in your home. But they decided to because they realized how much he loved them. They wanted to give him a place in their home. So verse 12 goes on. And the next day begins, verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So Jesus comes out. He's heading up to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is where Bethany was, and he had a little craving for fig newtons. You know, I don't know about you guys, I love fig newtons. I like to dip them in milk, or you know, just cream soda, whatever, and I like to eat them. Maybe that's weird, but I like fig newtons. So he's wanting some figs, and so he sees a fig tree. He goes to that fig tree, and he finds out that there's no figs on it. 
And then he kind of does something that seems probably to us a little bit rash. He curses it. He says, curse you tree. You know, it's like, why did he curse the tree? Maybe it, you know. So, but it says there that in verse um, 13, when he came to it and he found nothing but leaves, uh, for it was not the season for figs. Now, what I want to point out that he's not just talking about a tree here. This seems like a very common thing. He's seen a tree, he's hungry, he's going to get food. But many times in Scripture, God himself refers to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament as a fig tree. A couple of places that this reference is made is in uh, Jeremiah chapter 24, verse 1 through 10, Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, and then in Joel chapter 1, verse 6 through 12. If you want to read them later, that's a neat kind of a cross-reference. But this fig tree had leaves, so Jesus went to find something on it for food, but when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. No fruit. And that's the point that he's making. It says there in verse 13 that it was not the season for figs. But what I want to point out is that season for figs, it wasn't the season for figs means that it, it wasn't the time to pick the figs yet. Just because it wasn't the time to pick the figs didn't mean that there shouldn't be some sort of bud. There should have been some sort of bud to start growing a fig because it was March or April. So that was the time of Passover. That's how we know what time of year it was. So there should have at least been little buds producing the beginnings of figs. But there was no figs. So, because, um, so Jesus is showing us something more than just about fig trees because this is a picture of what Jesus is currently getting ready to do. He's come to the city of Jerusalem, the center of Jewish religion, the center of Israel, his people. And... Uh, He's coming to inspect the fruit of the fig tree that he's planted, which is the nation of Israel, the people that he's invested much time and energy into. And when he arrives, he's going to find that there's no fruit on the tree. There's all kind of leaves, and the tree is alive, but it's not producing fruit. Now, I don't know about you guys. I haven't spent a whole lot of time in an orchard, but it seems to me if there's a tree out there, and it's called a you-name-it tree, the fig tree, if it's an apple tree, if it's a pear tree, what do you think that a vine dresser or a gardener is going to do if he goes to his orchard and he finds a tree that doesn't produce any fruit? He's not going to like it. He's not going to keep it around because every tree in that area that's not growing fruit in an orchard is just taking up space and wasting nutrients from the soil. So what do you do? You get rid of that tree. You kill it. And you put one in there that will grow fruit. So Jesus is coming in. He's looking at this tree. There's no fruit on it. He says, curse you, tree. And then he walks away, and they go on to the next part. So we'll get back to that part of the scripture. But what I wanted to read, first of all, is if you turn with me, one book over to the book of Luke in chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable describing a fig tree. So in Luke chapter 13, verse 6 through 9, it says, he also spoke this parable. He said, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it, and he found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? Why is it wasting space, right? Verse 8. But he answered, and he said to him, sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it, 
and fertilize it. He's going to invest some effort into that tree. Verse 9 says, and if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So Jesus has spent this time, and the Lord God has spent time investing effort into this nation, Israel. And he's come to the very center of worship, and he shows up and he sees this fig tree, and it's really what he's getting ready to see in the nation of Israel in the middle of the, the place of worship. Barrenness. Anybody that's ever grown a garden, or grown anything, if they see that what they're trying to grow is barren, it produces all kinds of leaves but no fruit, it gets a little upset. People get upset with their garden when it doesn't produce fruit. And Jesus is showing up, and it's not like this is the first time that he's looked to his nation to see if it's produced any fruit. He's looked at this nation for many years, just waiting. At some point, it's going to come to maturity, and there's going to be fruit growing from this fig tree that I'm growing. And yet, even now here, he's showing up, and there's no fruit. God's poured time, energy, and resources, and much more into the nation of Israel by this time. They had been brought, remember the history of Israel, they'd been brought from the land of bondage, from Egypt. They'd been given the land of promise and the land of Canaan. He sustained them in the wilderness when they were disobedient on the way to the land of Canaan. And they were the nation that God chose to give the holy commandments, the Old Testament, the first five books, the law, and the instruction in the way of righteousness by which all men must worship God through sacrifice. And then when they strayed, God was faithful to chastise and to discipline them. You parents know that it takes lots of effort to discipline your children, to spend that extra time. Kids often think, oh, they're just hassling me. Well, don't you realize that when you're being disciplined, it's hassle to the parents too. It takes lots of effort and consistency. It takes time. So God had done this. He'd he'd showed them the way, and yet in all this, they took God's blessing, and they used it to their own advantage and kept it to themselves alone. No other nation was able to see God's goodness through them, and and no other nation had extended to them what God had given them because Israel ended up becoming all about them. And in the next passage, we will see an example of that selfishness that ended up being a curse to even their own brethren as well as the rest of those who wanted to worship the God of Abraham. Because there were many people that had come throughout the years and seen how they were blessed and got involved in the worship system. They converted to Judaism. But here's what happened to it. This is how what God made for good man took and used for themselves, man took and perverted. So verse 15 says, They came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. So verse 17 Then he taught, saying to them, quoting from Isaiah 56, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves or robbers. So verse 18 says, And the scribes and the chief priests heard it. They sought out how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. So as I mentioned before, Jesus had went into Jerusalem the night before and looked around. And based on what he saw that we just read in verses 15 through 18, there were some things that Jesus had noticed that he was not happy with. 
But first off, I want you to notice how Jesus, the Son of God, dealt with when he was upset about something. He went in the night before, he reviewed the town, he walked around, no doubt just as upset as he was this day when he went into the temple. But he didn't respond right then. He went back to Bethany and he slept on it. He waited. Love suffers long. No doubt he had waited for hundreds of years for the nation of Israel to produce fruit. But even then, when he entered the, the, the city of Jerusalem, after his triumphal entry, he didn't walk in, he didn't knock things down. He went back out, and no doubt he spent time with his father. He prayed about it. Lord, how do I deal with these people? They're completely missing the point, and they're pushing people away from me. How do I deal with them? So the next day is when he comes in, and he's not... He's not uh, <clears throat> He's not slow to deal with judgment then, is he? He comes into the temple. He comes to the very central place of the Jewish worship system. And Jesus went into the temple the next morning, having spent time considering what had taken place the night before and what he saw. He was quite angry. <clears throat> now, this, is, this anger is not anger like you or I experience. This is righteous anger. Excuse me. This is righteous anger. So Jesus went into the temple and he began to drive out certain people. Number one, those who bought and sold. Number two, the money changers. Now, he also would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. That was just people that were kind of walking through as if it was like a hallway between the places they wanted to go. This was a holy place of worship. Imagine, if you will, we're in here singing worship songs. Somebody comes in throughout the, from out on the street walks through, goes out the back door. What in the world? You know, we're worshiping the Lord. What are you doing in here? This is a place where we're spending time with the Lord and you're distracting us. So number one, he wanted to deal with those people. Hey, this isn't a hallway. This isn't a place to get wherever you want. This is a place of worship. And then he dealt with those who were buying and selling the money changers. But let me ask the question, why, what was the big deal with Jesus? Why, why was he having a trouble with these people, these particular people? Well, here's the big deal. At that time, in the worship system, the Israelites didn't all live there in Jerusalem. This is where they would come for the big feast. Actually, Jerusalem is not a very big town at all. But what they would do is, people all over Israel were spread out, and when they wanted to come for a feast day, there was only one place that they could worship in the temple that Solomon had built. And actually before that, it was the tabernacle. So as they came for this worship system, they were to bring the first fruits. They were to bring an animal or a grain offering or sometimes financial offering. But they would bring that all to the temple. But imagine a guy lives, say, in our vernacular, from Ironton to St. Louis. And he lives in St. Louis, but the only place to worship is in Ironton. Now, this would be kind of normal because... Jerusalem wasn't a big place. So sometimes they would be coming from a big city to worship, especially if they lived in another country. But as they came, they would bring their offerings. If they were a sheep herder, they'd bring sheep. If they had cattle, they'd bring cattle. If they were farmers that produced grain, they would bring bags of grain. Well, many times they would have to bring the firstborn of their sheep from that year. So they'd bring it. Now, if they were to walk their sheep, essentially from St. Louis to Ironton, do you think that sheep would look like a very good offering to give the Lord by the time they got there? No, the thing would be worn out. 
be beat down, wouldn't weigh anything, be burning all those calories because they didn't have time to eat enough. So what they would do is they would sell their sheep, they would sell their offering, and then when they got to Jerusalem, they would take the money from selling their offering and they would buy a sheep in the town. It was just kind of a practicality they had to deal with. So they would buy a sheep. There was nothing wrong with that. But oftentimes they were from a different country, so they would have different money. So they had to exchange the money they had for temple money. That's not a problem either. There's different currencies in different countries. Here was the problem. When they would exchange that money, the people that were exchanging the money, the money changers, they would take a fee off the top. And it would be an exorbitant amount of money. And they would take it and they would line their pockets with it. They were like, hey, we serve you, you owe us. But the problem is, is that that money was all money that was supposed to go to the Lord. So those people that were changing the money, they weren't doing anybody a service. What they were doing is they were robbing God. Not only did the people not have as much to offer, but they were robbing from the temple of the Lord that which people had brought to worship. They robbed the worship. And so in the same way, they would also have an issue with those that were selling doves. Many times... They would sell doves or they would sell uh, sheep. The other accounts say that. I'm assuming he only talks about doves because those who would offer doves were oftentimes people that didn't have much financially. And in the Roman culture, about 80 to 90% of the people that were um, worshiping from the Roman culture would be from poverty level. They would be slaves essentially. 80 to 90%. They were not of the up and up. And so um, they would come into worship and if they had animals that they wanted to sacrifice or if they had money where they wanted to buy a dove that they could sacrifice, oftentimes they would maybe sell their animal, come to the town, want to purchase one, they'd buy one outside the temple, and the priests, as part of their job, they would inspect it. This is good. They didn't want just any old thing to be coming in to be worshipped and offered to the Lord. They wanted the best of the best. The problem is, is that any little technicality, any little blemish on the animal would default. And they'd go, well, sorry, you can't use this sheep. I'm sorry, you can't use this stuff. Well, why not? It doesn't meet the standard. But what we do have is over here, you can buy one from the temple. You can buy one of our sheep. So they had people that would bring in sheep just to sell to people. Well, they didn't do it because, like, they, out of the goodness of their heart, they would charge a lot higher amount of money for those sheep in the temple. It's kind of like going to a Cardinals game. We're in the World Series, right? I guarantee you the price of a hot dog went up five more dollars Right, 15 bucks for a hot dog in the stadium. But they got you because you're there already, right? So that's what was going on in the temple. So when Jesus comes in and he sees this, he is livid. He is completely upset. And so he goes in, he starts thrashing. He, uh, he takes this thing, uh, a group of cords and he fastens it into a whip. And he starts whipping people. He's shooing them out of there. He's like, get out of my father's house. This was supposed to be a place of worship. This was supposed to be a house of prayer, a blessing to the nations, a sanctuary, a place where people could get away from the Lord. You know what you've made it? A den of robbers, thieves. Now, when I think of a den, I don't think of like something that's cuddly and cute. I think of wolves. I think of snakes. I think of vipers, like a place you do not want your children going. The house of the Lord is supposed to be a place where we feel free to worship, to offer up whatever we have. Maybe there were blemishes on those animals. But I was thinking about this passage. The Lord did want the best that we had to offer. 
But oftentimes all we have to offer is an animal with a bunch of blemishes. Oftentimes all we do have to offer is a, a sheep that's got, it's worn out from the miles. But the Lord is happy with that. He wants whatever we've got. He knows we don't have anything to offer Him He's really worthy of. He doesn't expect us to bring something that somebody else would worship with. Think about the widow that gave her two mites when she came to give her offering. The Pharisees and those that were higher up, they, they gave out of their abundance and they gave very little. But Jesus noticed what she gave. She gave two mites. But it was everything she had. She gave everything and she had nothing. The Lord, all He wants is whatever we have to offer. But what they had done is they had turned this into a place that nobody wanted to go to. Not only were they robbing people, but when people came to worship, they began to despise even going to worship. And that happens still today, right? People go to church, and I've heard it so many times, there's so many people that are getting robbed of fellowship in the body of Christ. Now many are just given an excuse that they've heard from other people. But there's also many that won't go to the temple of the Lord. They won't come to church to worship with other believers because they got burnt. Because they got hurt by somebody. Because they think that all the church wants is their money and get out. But many times that's the case. They'll take offering after offering while never offering anything to pour into the people. And so Jesus saw this and since He's the Good Shepherd, what does He do? He wards off the enemy. Takes the people that are hurting His sheep, He sends them packing. Don't let the door hit you in the hind. And as they leave, they're upset. Imagine that. He's just killed their little cash cow. So Jesus leaves, sends them out. And then as far as, uh, excuse me, so I lost my place because I kind of went on a rant there. But I think Jesus was having a rant. He went in that day realizing he was going to have to clean house. He was going to sweep things up. He wanted people to be able to come to his temple, his father's house, and worship in a way that they would feel free to worship. Not that they would feel forced not that they would feel like they were getting ripped off while they were doing it, but that they would be blessed in doing the one thing that God created us to do, and that was worship Him. With our heart, soul, with our mind, with our strength, with the first fruits of what He's given us to do as our labor. That's how the Lord wants us to worship. So verse 19. When evening had come, He went out of the city. And now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, Look, the fig tree which you cursed, it's withered away. So that night they return, after sending the people out of the house of the Lord, they stay in Bethany once again, only to return the very next morning to Jerusalem. And as they're walking along the way, Peter notices that the fig tree Jesus has cursed has completely withered away. He's the only one in the group, it seems, who remembered what Jesus had said to the fig tree, and he puts two and two together to realize that what Jesus spoke he apparently spoke with authority because the tree would not, in fact, be able to ever produce fruit again. It withered. It died overnight. So why did Jesus curse and wither the, the fig tree? And we kind of talked about that. Some suggest that the fig tree represents Israel, which bore no fruit and would soon face God's judgment. Now, Scripture teaches us that the Lord is not done with the nation of Israel. If you want to read a little bit more on that, Romans 9-11 through 11 explains that pretty clearly. He has plans through which He will fulfill all His promises and His purposes for the nation of Israel that He had made them from the beginning to Abraham. But that being said, I want to spend just a moment or two on why Jesus was so quick to judge those who were such a stumbling block inside of Jerusalem 
and ultimately, not just to Jerusalem, but the people that came to worship, to the world. In Luke chapter 12, verse 42 through 48, that's where I'm going to go. It says, Who then is that faithful? This is Jesus teaching his uh, disciples. He says, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. But if that servant says in his heart, My master is delaying in his coming and begins to beat the male and the female servants and to eat and to drink and be drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he's not looking for him, at an hour when he's not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will, knew what his master's purpose was, and did not prepare himself or do according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes, chastised. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with only few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required, and to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. God judges us who know the truth harsher than those who don't know the truth. If we're just playing around with what he's committed to us and we stumble someone else, there will be a reckoning on those, of those deeds on the day of judgment. Now don't get me wrong, we won't lose our salvation. That's not what this is talking about. We won't lose favor in God's eyes. But we will, we also will not have rewards to cast at the feet of Jesus for the good works that we have done to the glory of his name. Each time we learn something new from the Lord, we're accountable to how we use that truth. Here's the dangerous part about sitting in a Bible study and reading the Bible and and getting to know the, the God of the Bible through reading the whole Bible. We're accountable to every word that we've read, every word that God knows we've understood. And so the danger is that we can come week after week and, and study the Bible and we can read it daily. And if we don't put it to practice, what happens is that the Lord looks at us as accountable for those who have been given much. The nation of Israel had seen God miraculously deliver their people from bondage in Egypt. They had seen God miraculously provide for them in the desert when they were on the, land, on the way to the land of Canaan. God provided for them bread from heaven every day. Their shoes didn't wear out. And God protected them all the way to the nation of Canaan. And when they went in and conquered the land, God miraculously, and many times seemingly practically, helped them in in mighty ways defeat their enemies. Israel was not a nation of warriors. Israel was a nation of common people that had just been in slavery for years, and they were farmers. They were sheep herders. They weren't battle-wearied soldiers. They were people that came in. They had to make Weapons out of whatever they found. And God conquered the entire land of Canaan. So they were... um, And then they were also given the the commandments from the Lord. They were given the way to be righteous before God and to make things right by making sacrifices and repenting and walking in His ways. They were accountable to all those things they had learned from the Lord. And yet what they did was they took those blessings and they made it all about themselves. They... They made a system of worship where they could worship money and rob people that came to worship God. And so God judged them for that. But the thing is, is that we oftentimes, because we have the Word of God, we oftentimes think of ourselves 
maybe a little bit more better than those that don't know. But the danger is, is if we don't take the Word of God that we're actually reading and apply it to our own hearts, then what we can do the same thing that these Israelites did. People can come into worship. People that we work with, we might be trying to witness to, but we're not being obedient to the Lord in some area, and so they don't see the Lord in us, they see a hypocrite. And what the Lord wants to do is He wants to refine us, He wants to purify us. I have to tell you that this was a incredibly convicting for me because I haven't been faithful with what God's given me. I haven't been as good of a witness at work as I could have been. And the problem is, it's not so much that people won't come to know the Lord. That is a problem. But it's that I'm robbing God of the glory and those who might come to know Him through my testimony when I'm not being faithful and obedient to what He's shown me. So I'm reading this, I'm going, wow, i got a lot of work to do this week. I was incredibly convicted last night. But the cool thing is that God's mercy is new every morning. He doesn't say, know the whole Bible and get it right this instant. What he says is, be obedient to what I'm showing you today. This is the day. So, as I considered this passage, I thought of the verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. These people in the temple that were robbing people were missing the point completely. But Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. He says, here's your purpose. Take what I've given you. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Take everything that He gives you and use it to sustain you and to make you a fruitful fig tree. May we be fruitful. And may we, as we produce fruit, may other people be able to partake of that, to taste and see that the Lord is good. And as they taste and see that the Lord is good, may they see our good works and glorify our God in heaven. So, Father, as we, uh, as we finish up tonight, Lord, I thank you that your word is so poignant and that you are so zealous to love even those who are being disobedient to your word. As I think about the people that you drove out of the temple and, uh, and you sent them out very harshly, I think about the fact that it took love to do that, to show them that they were wrong. And so, Father, I pray that each person in here that has a little bit of that money changer in them is using your blessing to just bless themselves and is missing the point that you want to reach others through us, Lord. I pray that you would convict us of our sin, even the, the smallest ones that we don't see. Lord, show us where we lack. Show us where we're being a bad witness. Show us where we're causing people to despise the house of the Lord. And Father, may you, as you refine us, get all the glory. May people be drawn to you. May the Son of Man be lifted up, as John chapter 14 says. As the Son of Man is lifted up, so he will draw all men into himself. Lord, draw all people that need to know you, lost people, to know you as Jesus is lifted up in our lives. And cause us to be uh, good repenters. Lord, cause us, as you convict us and as you uh, show us where we lack, Lord, I pray that we'd be quick to apologize to those that we've affected by our own sins. Lord, no man sins unto himself. So Lord, help us to be quick to repent, especially to our families, and especially in front of our coworkers. Help us to be witnesses, not only in your triumphs, but in when you convict us. Uh, but Father, I just thank you for your word and how it does uh, free us from our sin and cause us to, to give you glory. So Lord, I pray tonight as we sing this last song that we would give you glory. In Jesus' name, amen.